0: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: The following podcast includes explicit language. Sorry, Mom.
0: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 5th, 2022. On this week's show, Grant Wall will join us to look back at the U.S. men's national team's loss to the Netherlands at the World Cup and to discuss what comes next for the program. Slate's Alex Kirshner will also be here to talk about how the college football playoff matchups shook out. And we'll discuss Deion Sanders' decision to leave Jackson State and become the head football coach at the University of Colorado. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. All episodes of our 1942 season are out now. And with me from California is Joel Anderson, the host of Slowburn's season three and six. And we should note that Slowburn season seven on Roe v. Wade, hosted by Susan Matthews, was just named Apple's podcast of the year for 2022.
1: Hi, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, good to see you. Hope you had a great weekend. Did you have a good weekend?
0: I'm, uh, doing great, just like basking. In all of the awards that I'm tangentially connected to. <laughs> are, you,
1: are you are you saying that to cover up the hurt about what happened in the SEC championship game? Or?
0: Oh, I didn't. Re- I thought you were genuinely asking if I had a good weekend and that you weren't. I, I, I was. Didn't been- it didn't occur to me that you were uh, trolling me. But now I'm I get it. That, yeah, no, I had a no, great I weekend. I,
1: didn't, I did not intend to troll you. <laughs> it just went in that direction when I saw your face. So that, <laughs> as you start to Thanks, think of what, you, what happened this weekend.
0: Well, that's what friends are for. We'll get more into that uh, momentarily in a few segments. From now.
1: I do want to say yes. Congratulations to the Slow Burn Seventeen. <laughs> uh, it was a great season, obviously well deserved. Josh, I mean you're, I mean you've been a part of a lot of championship teams, man. A lot of winning podcast. Two
0: thousand three, two thousand seven, two thousand nineteen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, You will be hearing from Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Wild and Outside Word Freak in a few seconds of panic, of course, in our first segment on the World Cup and during afterballs, but not in this intro or in our college football segments. And Joel will be out for the soccer conversation and the afterball. Joel, is there a message you want to send to Stefan and all of the other American soccer fans out there since you're not going to be in that segment?
1: I find it hard for you to be disappointed because what else did you expect?
0: <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> In our Slate Plus segment, Joel and I will talk about Deshaun Watson's return as an NFL quarterback after being accused by more than two dozen women of sexual assault or harassment. To hear that segment, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments, you get ad free shows, and you get to support us, which is uh, the best gift of all. Uh, to join, slate.com slash plus. That's slate.com slash hangup plus.
2: The United States four-year World Cup roller coaster screeched to a halt on Saturday. The 3-1 loss to a mature, skilled, and disciplined Netherlands team demonstrated how far the American men have come, but also how far they still have to go. Grant Wall is back with us. He is cranking out stories from Qatar on his website, grantwall.com. To read all of his work, you need to subscribe, and you should subscribe. Hey, Grant, welcome back. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks for coming back on the show. I know how crazy busy you have been, and it looks like it's been a blast covering the tournament. In the end, you know, it was a good ride for a very young American team, and it's hard to be too bummed, and I can't wait for 2026, but the Netherlands game was really frustrating to watch. Josh and I watched it together. The U.S. had chances to score. Its deadly defensive lapses were abnormal for what we saw the young core that was poised and often dominant in three intense group stage games against Wales, England, and Iran, just looked gassed.
3: Was it as simple as that, Grant? I do think that was a big part of it. You know, the U.S. started nine players for all four games, and that's not a lot of rotations. And so— I kind of wasn't surprised to see tired players in game four against a tougher opponent in the Netherlands. You know, Tyler Adams never gets tired. And he looked tired in this game. And, you know, he he was the one who didn't track back fully on the first Dutch goal. Eunice Musa didn't cover for him. He also looked tired at times in this game. And it was asking a lot of these U.S. players, I think... play as many minutes as they did in this tournament. It was interesting after the game, none of the players wanted to say they were tired because I think they look at it as an excuse, but I'm always approaching it as, what do my eyes tell me when I'm watching this? And I, I, I saw some tired guys.
0: So it seemed like the foreign press was actually more willing to give praise to Greg Berhalter for his tactics and the way that he got this team to play in the World Cup than a lot of the domestic press. Um, as far as, as I'm concerned, I, I think a lot of the stuff he got criticized for was stuff that was only kind of on the margins, really, like substitutions, kind of the last guys on the roster and things like that. Um, but for me, the one thing that felt like was maybe the more legitimate was that there was a kind of conservatism around both the way he managed with the lead, sort of the classic coach thing of like wanting to maintain the lead rather than trying to actually score more and give yourself a little bit more of a comfortable margin against Wales and Iran. And then, you know, with the problems that the U.S. has had at Stryker, it is, I think, fair to put that in the bucket of conservatism and just like, all right, we're just going to put our best guys at our weakest position just keep trotting them out there rather than kind of changing the whole lineup and putting a Tim Way at center forward, putting a Geo Rain, Re- you know, trying something that would have been more radical, but it's a choice that they decided not to make.
3: Yeah, I do feel like overall in the group stage, Burhalter got the tactics mostly right. You know, in and, and tactics, it's not just choosing players, it's how you're going to execute a game plan. And that's sometimes different from game to game. And The first game against Wales, they knew Wales would have five in the back and the US would have to really work to break down uh, a low block, which is not something that's easy for them, uh, to be honest. You know, the angling game, it was more about what the US was doing tactically in defense, where they went, you know, without getting too geeky here, like into sort of without the ball, like a 4 2 2 2, and really tried to keep the middle of the field. well defended, and they did a good job. They really limited players like Jude Bellingham from England, who's been terrific in this tournament, kept the English from producing many goal-scoring chances. The U.S. had slightly more chances to score in that game, which ended up in a tie. They also had to ask Christian Pulisic to play more defense in that setup in the second game, which is good when your star player is willing to do that. You know, in the third game against Iran, they knew they would have to try and break down Iran because they knew they needed to score goals. And they got one uh, when Pulisic scored and injured himself in the process. And as in the first game against Wales, I wish the US had gotten a second goal and pushed a little harder for the second goal against Iran, because they ended up going sort of into the prevent defense. And it was really stressful (laughs) because Iran had chances later in the game uh, until the final whistle, basically. So um, I do think not getting three points from that first Wales game really changed the equation and put a lot more pressure on the U.S. to do anything possible in desperation to get out of the group. If you get three points from that first game, I think that changes how the calculus on how you're going to approach the next couple of games. You know, the way it worked out against England, the U.S., for you know, for the U.S., a tie was almost the same as a loss in the group. Everything was about getting the win against Iran. So I kind of wish the U.S. had done more to try to win that game against England and win the group. Because as we're seeing now, winning the group gives you a much better chance of winning the World Cup. And the goal is not just to advance to the round of 16. The goal is to win the World Cup. Yeah,
2: they would have played Senegal instead of playing the Netherlands, and we saw on Sunday that England basically took apart Senegal, Um, and the Netherlands were a much better coached, more tactical, more experienced, and just overall more world-class side. So I I agree with you, Grant. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, the England guy was screaming at the television, like, just go for it. Particularly at the end. It was just like, flood the box. Try to get the goal. This victory would have been a huge... Huge factor um, in in setting the team up going forward. But back back to Berhalter. I mean, I think a lot of the criticism. And I guess the question now, Grant, is going to be: Does a, a manager come back for a second cycle? It's not typical in in world soccer. It does happen. U.S. Soccer brought Jurgen Klinsmann back for a second go round and dismissed him during the second cycle. Um, I think that's a little bit, we can talk about that, but if we're evaluating Berhalter, I think you're right. I think that the, the tactically seemed pretty good. Um, the criticism about Gio Reyna and whether he should have played, I think fair criticism about, about subs fair, but, and the but here is, I think a lot of the criticism that, um, Berhalter got during the run up to the tournament. The U.S as we saw in this tournament, when it could rely on its eight or nine world-class players, were really good. When you have to sub in players of a lesser caliber, it exposes the lack of depth. So we need a second wave of world-class players. I don't know if that's Berhalter's responsibility. It's certainly part of it. And he did a great job of bringing in dual nationals like Yunus Musa, like Sergio Dest into this team. Um, is the wave coming, Grant, of second players?
3: I think in the next four years before hosting the World Cup in 26, the U.S. had better hope to get more quality depth than they have right now. And they had better hope to find a number nine, get a center forward, because this isn't just a U.S. problem. This is actually a trend in global soccer There aren't that many world-class center forwards these days, anywhere. Germany doesn't have one. And we saw that in this tournament when they went out in the group stage. So whatever, like, I'm not an expert on youth development. I have no problem saying that. But, like, whether it's Germany or the U.S., create some center forwards, y'all. I mean, like, focus on that because it's a huge part of the game. Scoring is the most important thing in soccer, and it's kind of embarrassing that the, the U.S. center forwards here just were of such a low quality, and Burhalter refused to sort of acknowledge that and get his best attackers on the field. All throughout the tournament, we talked about this, of start Tim Way in the center. He's played in that position. Mm-hmm. And he showed in the first game, he's very comfortable finishing in front of the goal. And that would allow you to get Brendan Aronson in to start or on the wing or Gio Reyna. It's crazy to me that Brendan Aronson, who's in terrific form in the Premier League, did not start a single game in this tournament. And part of that was due to the U.S. being less injured on the winger positions and having a lot of good wingers. But it's it's still crazy to me. At least one of those group games, Brendan Aronson should have started. And I don't know if Gio Reyna should have necessarily started, but I would have liked to see him come on much earlier and in more of the games than he did. This is a guy who started three of Dortmund's six Champions League games. That's the best club competition in the world. And he was being, not being used here. Uh, Jordan Morris and Jesus Ferreira being chosen over him.
0: The thing that I found so fascinating about this tournament, and we're recording this on Sunday, so we've seen the kind of favorites just romp through this weekend, is that this is the same tournament where Argentina can lose to Saudi Arabia. And then this weekend, you see, whether it's England or France or Argentina or the Netherlands, just look totally indomitable and look like they're playing an entirely different sport. Um, And so for all that we talk about tactics, kind of based on what I saw in that game on Saturday, and I don't know if you guys had the same feeling... I feel like if the U.S. had adjusted, the Netherlands would have just done something different and figured out another way to to win. Um, and I feel like whenever we're talking about tactics, it's just the assumption like, all right, we would have changed this and they would have done everything exactly the same. And then it would have kind of gone differently. But just like from seeing all the games, from being there, like, can you explain to us how, um, you know, you can see these upsets that we've seen in this first set of games and make it look like, wow, the world, you know, the world is catching up. And then this weekend it's like, nope, not at all. A
3: big Empire Strikes Back weekend <laughs> with the four the first four <laughs> elimination games being won by heavyweight teams. So we're talking about the Netherlands, Argentina, England, France, in what turned out to be fairly lopsided games against yeah, upstart, upstart countries who had gotten to the second round. And so there's a bit of reality coming into this World Cup now which by the way is going to set up some fantastic quarterfinal matchups. And yet I do feel like it wasn't the US performance against the Netherlands wasn't just about the US being tired. It was about Louis van Hall the Dutch coach tactically winning the battle and choosing making some choices that the US wasn't necessarily able to adapt to because van Hall himself said the US didn't adapt. I expected coming into this game that the Netherlands would have more possession. They have more talent in controlling the ball. And what they decided to do instead was to cede possession willingly to the U.S. and not pressure upfield at all and just sit back, let the U.S. center back start, try to pick their spots to, to start the attack. And they won balls that way, the Netherlands, and were able to go on the counter in the other direction. And then they took advantage on all three goals, uh, the goal scorer being totally unmarked by the U.S. in the box, which we hadn't seen in this tournament. The U.S. had been good defensively. They had not given up a goal in the run of play during the entire group stage. They were the only team in the tournament that could say that. And it fell apart against the Netherlands. But it fell apart in part because of the tactics that the Netherlands used. And I, I do think Greg Berhalter did get you know, outcoached a little bit in this game, and there's just a, a talent advantage for the Netherlands. There were moments when the U.S. had scoring chances, and they ended up being fairly even overall in shots on goal. U.S. had more possession. The expected goals were similar, but in the box, the Netherlands was much more effective. They executed. They scored.
2: In in a way, this was to be expected, right? I mean, the Netherlands are the Netherlands. This is a team that has been a world soccer power for for you know since the seventies, since the sixties.
0: Didn't make the twenty eighteen World Cup. Got knocked out of the Euros in the round of sixteen. It
2: happens. (laughs) Italy's not. Italy didn't make this tournament. I mean, even the best teams don't qualify for the World Cup from Europe all the time. Um, So, I mean, I think to sum up, Grant, on our on, on the, this two weeks for the United States. This was a likable, improved, talented, exciting group of players. Um, and Greg Berholder does deserve credit. The players seem to like him. He made good calls at the end, bringing in Tim Ream and Josh Sargent and Cameron Carter Vickers into the final team who hadn't played a lot in qualifying. Tactically, as you mentioned, they did pretty well against Iran and England. Um, and he got them to peak at the right time. Um, this all feels like, you know, for all the criticism and the, the loss against the Netherlands, we should be pleased here as
3: U.S. soccer followers and fans. This U.S. team advanced in this tournament to where they should have gotten on paper, due to their based on their talent, which is to get to the round of 16 – and then to go out to the Netherlands. That was sort of how most of us predicted things would go. That's how it went. It was probably tougher in the group stage once the U.S. did not get a win against Wales. Mm -hmm. But they made it, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. And it is going to be seen, this performance, as something that got people in the U.S. excited about the U.S. men's national team, excited about hosting the World Cup in three and a half years with this team that should have players in their prime, and one hopes new additions, new younger additions. And that's, that's good for U.S. soccer. That's really good. Do you want to beat the Netherlands and show that you can take down a world power in a World Cup, which only happens once every four years? Of course. And so that's where the frustration is because the U.S. could have gone up 1-0 early in this game. Pulisic had a golden opportunity Did not convert. Nice save. And the U.S. did have a lot of possession early on. And then on the first Dutch attack, they scored. And get another just gut-punch goal right before halftime on a goal that looked eerily similar, this cutback Mm -hmm. pass to the top of the box from the right side. U.S. gets a very lucky goal uh, in the last 15 minutes. Uh, the ball just sort of bouncing off of Haji Wright and somehow getting into the net. And then there was that moment a couple minutes later when Wright was in a foot race with the goalkeeper of the Netherlands and just barely missed out on getting the ball. If he gets that ball, he finishes and it's a tie score. Instead, the Netherlands goes down and gets their third. So, you know, moments can define games. And do I think... When you just look at the score line that the U.S. deserved to lose 3-1, probably not, but that's soccer.
0: Yeah, I guess my kind of closing big-picture thought is I've been thinking a lot about Germany and um, how in 2010 they had this super young roster, they made it to the semis. We're talking about like a different a different class here, uh, you know. Their their like really young roster makes it to the semis instead of the round of sixteen. Then they win the World Cup in twenty fourteen, and there were so many pieces written then about how they basically like solved the sport <laughs> that they not only at the highest level but at the youth academies and how it was just generation after generation kind of coming up. And then in twenty eighteen, they um, you know that team. Underwhelmed, They didn't get out of the group stage. And and this year, sort of a different problem. I think, according to analytics, they actually played really well and still didn't get out of the group stage. And the takeaway there is never think that you've actually solved the sport, which is incredibly challenging and so competitive. Like, everyone in the whole world plays it. And so to think that you're going to beat everyone every time is just absurd. But also that this tournament is just unforgiving. And so even if you are the best team or one of the best teams, you're, you're coming up, that's no guarantee that you'll do well or do better. Um, but in 2026, you know, one of the things until Qatar really just bombed out of this tournament, one of the things that has been true over the years is that you do do well when you host the tournament. So there's lots of reasons for optimism.
2: Grant, before you go, I wanted to ask you just about the general environment of watching these games in Qatar, again, a country the size of Connecticut that basically built cities for this tournament. Uh, Sam Knight of The New Yorker has a terrific long-form piece that published online on Sunday um, that examines not just the the soccer but everything around this tournament being held there and the country Um, and how it's approached the tournament. And Sam writes, the spontaneity and the fellow feeling of the world's most popular sport were disrupted and modified by the circumstances in which it was played. The first 10 days of the World Cup in Qatar, he said, were soccer as it is rather than as you want it to be, it was venal, closed, and transactional. How has it felt to you and what's the experience been like?
3: I do think transactional is a very good word to describe how I feel about the Qataris, and their hosting of the World Cup, they have literally paid hundreds of millions of dollars, probably total in the billions, to people and companies to say nice things about them. And that includes Fox Sports, that in the U.S., that includes BN Sports, which is broadcasting the games here in Qatar. Uh, that would include all sorts of ambassadors like David Beckham, who's making more than $200 million dollars speaking on Qatar's behalf and David Beckham's a guy who was earlier in his career, been very supportive of the gay community. He was one of the first prominent soccer players to do that. And now the gay community to a large part feels betrayed by David Beckham because he's taken the money from a place that has been very homophobic where they've criminalized being gay. And, you know, even, you know, here in Qatar, before the tournament, FIFA and U.S. soccer had people answer my questions by saying it would be no problem for any visitor here, any fan, journalist, whatever, to, to wear a rainbow flag uh, or a rainbow shirt or whatever. And now it's very clear that you couldn't trust FIFA or U.S. soccer when they said that because it has been a problem and at time still continues to be. Um, and... You know, just the the Qataris have um, wanted to show control that FIFA doesn't have total control of the tournament. And, and I think that's cast a bit of a shadow over this. You even had uh, people representing FIFA who should know better, like Arsene Wenger, who I have so much respect for his career in, in the game, come out today, he's working for FIFA, and say that teams that did any sort of protest... Uh, of Qatar or anything like that struggled on the field because of that. And those just aren't connected. And there's no evidence for that. And that fits the narrative that FIFA and Qatar want to have about this World Cup. So it's weird. It's weird. They're, they're not entirely welcoming. You know, like you would think that if you're hosting a, a World Cup, you'd want to be seen as welcoming the world. But that feeling isn't there on the ground and in the stadiums. And I will say logistically, you know, it's very different to have a World Cup take place in one city and it's more convenient for visitors and journalists. You know, I'm in the same bed every night. I'm not wasting my time on airplanes. And it's nice, it feels a bit like a convention with fellow journalists. When I go to the International Media Center, I see a lot of my journalist friends from around the world and it's nice to catch up. It's more like an Olympics than a World Cup. It's more like an Olympics than a World Cup. And so I do wonder if there might be even way down the road in future World Cups in bigger countries proposals to not have those venues all around the country to maybe localize it a little bit more. But that's not going to happen for the U.S., Mexico, and Canada in 26. And that World Cup will feel different to cover than this one does.
2: Grant Wall, thank you so much. As always, his website is grantwall.com. Go read his fantastic coverage of the tournament so far. He will be there through the end, even though the United States is out. Again, it is grantwall.com. Grant, thank you again for coming on the show.
3: My pleasure, guys.
2: Coming up next, everybody celebrates Texas Christian University making it to the college football playoff. Joel, I am so, so happy for you.
0: Terms apply.
1: The order started to break down Friday night when fourth-ranked USC lost for the second time to Utah in the Pac-12 championship game. But things really seemed to descend into chaos the next afternoon when number three TCU lost in overtime to Kansas State in the Big 12 title game. Later that night at halftime of the Big 10 championship game, Fox Sports welcomed Nick Saban, head coach of sixth ranked Alabama to lobby and some might say misinformed the public for his team spot in the college football playoff. Here's a clip.
0: Uh, I think that the committee should look at how is a team playing right now relative to uh, what the circumstances were of the entire body of work Uh, what the competition uh, you had to play against throughout the season. I don't think people realize how difficult it is in the SEC. And We played five road games this year, all top 25 teams. Three of those five teams were top 10 teams. So that's a grueling uh, schedule to have to play. And I know we lost two of those games on the last play of the game on the road in tough circumstances. But I think all those things should matter. And we shouldn't be just looking at
2: metrics of, one loss, two loss. Uh, I think, who who are the best teams?
1: So tough to play in the SEC. If he wants it to be easier, maybe he should move to the Mountain West. But a quick fact check about Sabin's schedule. So Bama played four SEC road games against Arkansas, Tennessee, LSU, and Ole Miss. Here are those teams' rankings in the final CFP poll. Unranked, number six, a four-loss, 17th-ranked LSU. Sorry, Josh. And unranked, not quite a murderer's row. But anyway, the CFP committee ignored Saban, an SEC supremacist, and set the playoff field Sunday. Georgia versus Ohio State in the Peach Bowl and <clears throat> TCU versus Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl. BML, I'm coming for you. Uh, both semifinals will take place on New Year's Eve. Today, we welcome a friend of the show, a friend and regular contributor of Slate, Alex Kirshner, who's also co-host of the Split Zone Duo
4: College Football Podcast. Alex, thanks for joining us. Joel, thank you for having me. Josh, thank you for having me. Joel, do I now refer to you as college football playoff alumni participant? Joel Anderson?
1: I would hope so. I would hope so. And I'm I'm glad you, you opened so generously there to acknowledge that, because I listen to Split Zone Duo regularly, and I know that you've been... A notable skeptic, one of the most prominent of my horn frogs, and I promise I'm not going to hold it against you. I promise. But let's just start with this. Do you think these are the right four playoff teams? 100%. Absolutely. Real? Okay. All right. Tell me. Yeah. So you don't have a problem with my horn frogs. So you've basically picked against every week this season.
4: I don't know that I've picked against them every week. I did pick against them this past weekend when they lost. But I was saying before that, that even if they did lose, they should be in the playoff automatically. And it turned out they were. I think the TCU is a great team and has to be in the playoff. And I'm thrilled that they are. It's good to get a change of pace. I just was skeptical that, you could any, that anyone could get through the 2022 Big 12 undefeated because there are no like bad, capital B bad teams in that conference. There are certainly... Troubled teams, you know, Oklahoma being mediocre is a good example of that. Um, Texas still being Texas is an, is an example of that, but there's no walk in the park games because Kansas got better. So I was hugely impressed that they could get to 12 and 0. I did not think they were going to quite get to 13 and 0, but I think they deserve to be where they are. And I'm excited to watch them play Michigan.
0: Among other people who seem to doubt TCU every week is one Joel Anderson.
4: but you can do it because you're in the family
1: so it's okay that's right yeah this is this is this is family business right here uh josh
0: i understand so coming off of that loss kind of backing their way into the playoffs or how do you how do you feel about that
1: (laughs) well i mean you've rooted for two lost national champion i felt great about that maybe
0: you feel great about it too share
1: do you know what i like to say TCU 2022 undefeated
4: in regulation. So uh that's a good... Th- <laughs> you and Les
0: Miles are enjoying that Logan. But go ahead, Alex.
4: You can also say, Joel, that TCU has beaten every team it's played. Because that's a fact. That they lost true. to Kansas State in the Big 12 championship, but they had already beaten Kansas State. So if you just want to say beaten every team they've played, that's a fact. Indisputable.
1: And you know what? TCU is to blame for this in a lot of ways, because as we know, back in 2014, when TCU and Baylor both had one loss and TCU went into the final week of the season uh, at number three in the polls and they beat Iowa State, but they were knocked the week after that because they did not have a Big 12 championship game. Now there's a Big 12 championship game. They went through that whole gauntlet that you mentioned earlier, Alex, and then they lose in overtime. You know, I I said going into this week that TCU shouldn't have had to have they didn't have anything to prove. Um, I'm glad that they did lose the way that they did. Um, that they lost, you know, in a, a admirable way. Like nobody can look at TCU losing to a top 10 team on a neutral site in that manner. And I think really, you know, dock them on their resume. I didn't think that that championship game was necessary, but to the extent that they had to play in it, if they weren't going to win, that was the best case scenario.
4: Kind of a legendary loss too. Like it was, they played really hard. Max Duggan, the quarterback who's a really fun college quarterback led this sort of like while his body was falling apart, game tying drive with a two point conversion to get the game to overtime, played his heart out. I'm, I'm happy to see him be in the college football playoff. And yeah, if, if you're going to lose the game, you might as well lose it, leaving it all out there. And they definitely did, including like his guts in this case.
0: If Stefan is listening, he's been really trying mm-hmm. to promote uh, his theory, uh, alongside Nick Saban, that Alabama really did have a chance. But now looking back at what's happened the last few weeks, it really does seem like everything that could have happened in Alabama's favor happened and they still didn't make it, which bolsters my and Joel's argument that they never really had a chance. It seems like going into last week, the only thing that would have gotten Alabama into the playoff was if TCU had lost to Iowa State. Um, mm. And instead they beat them by 48 points or whatever. But is that is that right, Alex, that like now looking back, Alabama really, we were correct <laughs> after they lost to LSU that they really never did have a chance?
4: They had a very slim chance. And I also said they're basically eliminated because they lost to LSU. That was their second loss at the, I think, the first week of November. And that eliminated them from the SEC, a two loss non-champion You figure, no way. No two-loss teams ever made it. Obviously, a two-loss team that did win the SEC would make it, but you thought that was it. I think it is true that if TCU had lost an extra game before the Big 12 championship, so if that fire drill field goal that TCU kicked to beat Baylor in Waco a couple weeks ago had gone wide left, and then they had lost another game to Kansas State in the Big 12 championship, I do think in that event that they would have gotten jumped. I think Bama would have would have snuck in. But it also says something that it took a lot of carnage and a lot of things going exactly Alabama's way in the last two, three weeks of the season. And it still didn't do it, you know, and, and obviously I I think it was pretty funny to listen to Nick Saban be reduced (laughs) to groveling after spending an entire year and an entire lifetime really, like kind of pissing back at the media about how they're actually giving his team all this rat poison by pumping them (laughs) up too much. And we just want to play football and not be, not be hyped up by the media all the time. And then he goes and has to beg on Fox and on ESPN before the playoffs. So if you enjoyed that, if you enjoy that kind of thing, it was, it was quite a weekend.
1: So one thing that I would like to talk about, Alex, is that going into last week's uh, championship games, Dan Wetzel had written a column that essentially the final four teams should have been set that Georgia, um, Michigan, TCU and USC, like should, should, go even if they lost but usc lost on friday night for the second time to utah as i mentioned at the top and i don't still think that there's a lot of conversation or enough about whether or not that's actually fair to usc even though they lost to utah twice and but utah's not a bad team and caleb williams was clearly compromised in the second half like you, you said previously that you think that the right four teams are in so why do you think ohio state should get in over usc
4: so this is tough because Ohio State should not be able in, in a vacuum to back into the playoff after losing by 23 or whatever it was to the only real competition they played all year in their biggest game of the year, and then just get to idle for a weekend while a lot of these other teams have to work and bleed, and then back into the playoff. Sure, that's fine. Uh, the reason that I think it's the right four teams is that USC – Also didn't win its conference. Uh, it did win a, it it won a place in the conference title game by being, you know, the best team in the Pac 12 during the regular season. But if the Big 10 had the same scheduling and conference championship format that the Pac 12 did, then Ohio State would have simply played Michigan again in the Big 10 championship. And maybe they'd have lost that game. But the point is that Ohio State didn't win their conference. USC didn't win their conference. They were both a, a top one or two team in their league in the regular season with exactly one loss. And so I'm okay with it on the basis that USC was given sort of a a, a path to a title game that Ohio State was not given and that I don't think USC is otherwise through their body of work better than Ohio State. Uh, is it very silly though that Ohio State gets to get stomped by Michigan and then sit around doing nothing for a week and then make the playoff. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely silly. And I think it does speak to it that we probably don't need a 14 playoff this year. Probably could have just had three and given Georgia a bye Mm -hmm. and let Michigan and TCU play each other. But that's not the way we do things in college football.
0: Wait, why does TCU, why do we need three? What? Why can't I mean, we just go with the old too. BCS system? No,
1: no, 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 no! What are you doing, Josh? Wait, you at to me again. You're trying to leave us out of this. You're trying to leave us out of the playoff, even out of Alex's new playoff.
0: Oh, so, so if we were to choose between the past, present, and future systems for this year, I think the past wins out. If we're going to go 2-4-12, or I think what, what the game we really want to see is Georgia and Michigan. I mean, it's really interesting to look at what a 12-team college football playoff would look like, because that is going to be our future in just a couple of years. And the teams that get first-round buys, it's like weird to think about, but it's Georgia, Michigan, and then probably Clemson and Utah. You take yeah. the four highest ranked best conference champions and then you know who you're playing in the first round joel who's that go greenies,
4: greenies? Oh,
0: T-C- really wave tcu and tulane
1: just don't, don't, don't do that you know when i was in college tulane used to kick our ass all the time i think we lost to tulane 35 to 7 one time so would have been it'd been a nice little uh old school i think was were we were in the conference usa i can't remember what league we were in when we, when we tulane would kick our ass but that's what it was.
0: So you've got um, first round matchups: TCU, Tulane, Ohio State, Penn State, Alabama, USC, Tennessee, Kansas State. Some of those people would be interested in watching. Some of them maybe not so much. Um, but it that this will this will be our uh, future in just a couple of years. Um, let's talk about Georgia and they did some just absolutely disgusting things, particularly Jalen Carter, who is mm-hmm. our presumptive, maybe number one pick in the NFL draft. And I found it fascinating, Alex, um, having watched both the LSU-Alabama and LSU-Georgia games very closely, knowing that Alabama has a lot of five stars, the Georgia players just look different or seem different or play different. Like, Alabama doesn't have Jalen Carter. They don't have Brock Bowers. There are a lot of guys on that Georgia team who just look better and different than anyone um, in the country, and even though, and uh, maybe you can address that, but I also just wanted to ask about LSU just passing for 500 yards against them, and what that portends for, for the Ohio State game. But first, like, how is it that Georgia's team, even though you would think that maybe Alabama, with as many top recruits, would look that way, it's just like, why do their dudes just seem so different than anybody else's dudes?
4: I think. Georgia in the last four or five years in particular has become Alabama's equal and arguably superior in recruiting. And that's hard to do, but it's every year. I mean, last year, Texas A&M jumped up there as well, but Georgia consistently, um, is in the top three in, in the inexact science of recruiting rate, uh, recruiting rankings. I also think that this is something that Georgia has successfully done that most Ex Nick Saban assistant coaches have not done is that Kirby Smart has replicated the mystical process better than most. You know, Georgia gets these players into the weight room and just like you're already dealing with the best players that high school football has to offer, and you just make them even better than they otherwise would be. Uh, also, there's a demographic point to be made here, which is that Georgia has for the last oh, 20 years, maybe more. Been a booming area, especially in like the suburbs around Atlanta and in an area where public schools in, are, you know, in the state of Georgia really invest a lot in football. Um, so you're getting a better pool of players. So it used to be that California, Texas, and Florida were the places where it was advantageous to be. And it's, that still is true. I mean, those places still have players, but Georgia is now an equal to to those states. And Georgia, the University of Georgia, is the undisputed top dog, no pun intended, in that state. So all of these things kind of contribute to Georgia just having like an outrageous quantity of dudes who look like the best Alabama players.
1: Georgia, so Georgia doesn't have, um, you know, Atlanta to itself, but for the most part, they don't have to share like all these other states. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like kind of like LSU in a way. Like how LSU has like Tulane. And, you know, maybe Louisiana Tech or whatever, and Georgia has Georgia Tech, but they don't really have to share with anybody else. And in that way, Alex, and maybe if you can walk with me on this, I feel like Georgia is one of those few schools that delivered on its promise. Because for years, people were like, man, Georgia is in this fertile recruiting ground. They've got all the facilities. They've got all this history and tradition. They should be better than they are. And yeah. people say that about <clears throat> Maryland, North Carolina. Arizona State, Rutgers even. Yeah, I feel feel like people have been saying Rutgers should be good my entire life. And I'm like, why? What's the point? But Georgia is the school that actually delivered on its promise in a way that, uh, unlike a lot of those other
4: schools, right? I agree with you. And this was really, it, it was somewhat controversial, not hugely, but they fired Mark Richt after the 2015 season, I think it was. Mark Richt was a really good college football coach. And as evidence of that got the job at Miami within a year or two of of getting fired at, at Georgia I think he might have even gone immediately the next year Mark Richter at Georgia had a 145 and 51 record in 15 years he won 74 percent of his games he took Georgia to all kinds of BCS bowl games and they fired him anyway and I get it and it's obviously been vindicated because of what they've done since but I think there's really two programs that I I kind of view in that class. There's Georgia and there's Ohio State. Like these are jobs that you basically cannot screw up. Like it's pretty much impossible. I think like it might be true for Josh and me, Joel. You could definitely coach one of these programs having played the game at a high level, <laughs> and you could do nine and three solidly. And Josh and I could at least take them to a bowl, either Ohio State or Georgia.
1: Yeah, right, right. You know, Alex, it's funny you say that because well, not not about me coaching, but you would. You said Georgia and you said Ohio State. Last year, you would have said Oklahoma in that group, too.
4: Probably. Probably. Right. Oklahoma has had very few downs. Very right. few downs. Yeah. Although, I wonder how that's going to hold up when they go and play. Joel's loving. I'm sure Joel's loving this, but when Oklahoma goes to the SEC, <coughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure that that will be the same. It might be, but we'll find out.
0: Our last thought. Should... There be any cause for concern from Georgia that LSU, not known for its vaunted passing game, threw for 500 yards? I mean, LSU has amazing receivers, but Ohio State's receivers are peerless, as far as I understand. What do we what do we make of that? And also, I'd love to hear jo- Joel's like uh, preview of TCU, Michigan. But Alex, you go first.
4: I think no cause for concern because Oregon scored three points against Georgia and Tennessee scored 13, and anyone would say that those are two of the five best offenses in college football and they did very, very poorly against the dogs. And in this case, most of those points were after the game was effectively over. So it was 28-7, right? And it might have been even worse at some point in that game. So I would say 35-7. no concern. 35-7. Uh but it is also true that Marvin Harrison Jr., uh Amekbuka Jackson Smith and Jigba, if he's healthy, which he has not been for basically this entire season, I say has three first-round NFL receivers. That's a lot. Uh, Marvin Harrison Junior. is like Larry Fitzgerald, Michael Crabtree level college football player. If you are familiar with those players, which I'm sure you both are, um, so Ohio State could score on these guys. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't totally discount that.
1: So okay, TCU playing against Michigan. Josh asked me to what you wanted me to to gloat preview. What do you? What did you want me to do here? What, do you think what are you going to happen? You put, what do I think is going what to happen? are
0: you looking for? What will be decisive?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do i do not going to get out here and be stupid. Okay, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say the thing. I'm not going to pretend the TCU is the equal of Georgia or Michigan or Ohio State in terms of talent. Um, I do think, though, to Alex's point, that I actually take a lot of encouragement from how they played this year. They're not an overly talented team but they have managed to figure out ways to win they've got some first round talent I was looking at it was I don't know if it's Todd McShay or Mel Kuyper's you know top five players in the uh college football playoff and TCU has one of them right so there are some elite level players at TCU and there's some ways that they can exploit Michigan um I'm I mean I don't I I know you want me to get out here and and make myself look stupid. I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. But I will say I am cautiously optimistic about our chances against Michigan for reasons that don't make a lot of sense. But put it this way, I feel a lot better about our chances against Michigan than if we had, than if we had to open against Georgia. So I feel like this is the preferable matchup and uh you know well you know i'll maybe maybe i'll my, i'll get my my gas up a little bit later you know maybe i'll you know I'll, I'll feel a little bit more like talking some shit but i'm not i'm not there yet i'm just grateful to be in, be among the crew
0: nobody probably on michigan is gonna lift up your quarterback as a trophy so uh <laughs> as, <laughs> as Jalen carter did too Jaden daniels
1: <laughs> hey nobody lifting up max dugan no way i mean i know jay J daniels is a guy but max dugan is a tough motherfucker too okay In the next segment, Alex joins us again to talk about primetime coming to Colorado.
0: It's hard to pick just one soundbite from Deion Sanders' speeches over the weekend, first to the Jackson State football team that he's coached for the last three seasons, then to the Colorado team that he's been hired to lead. But let's start with how he answered a question in his opening press conference in Boulder, where he was asked if he was at all worried about whether he'd be able to live up to sky-high expectations
5: do you look like a man that worries about anything not at all did no. you see the way i walked in here did you see the swagger that was with me worry baby i'm too blessed to be stressed uh, yeah come on i'm too drunk. blessed to be stressed
0: joel we can get into some of the other stuff that coach prime said in a little bit but this is a man who more than anyone else on earth is going to win that opening press conference. But what are your opening thoughts about this move to leave an HBCU for one of the worst performing Power Five programs in the country?
1: So let's start here. Colorado is fortunate to have landed Dion. He will bring energy and renewed attention and players of a caliber that haven't been there in nearly 30 years. Uh, As you mentioned, that's the worst P5 school in the country right now. and. Colorado has declined in a way that maybe Baylor should have, going back to its handling of rape allegations under Gary Barnett in the early 2000s. Like, I mean, Colorado has been gutted since those investigations and those allegations against the program. So they have been really at the floor for a very long time. I can't say what sort of coach Dion is or will be in Boulder. He's obviously charismatic, has a lot of magnetism. I wouldn't be surprised if Colorado was better next year though I can't say for sure. And and one thing that I heard listening to a few other podcasts, particularly the Audible uh, with Bruce Feldman and Stuart Mandel, is that Jackson State was so much more talented and better than its competition that it's tough to translate how that will work against Lincoln Riley and USC, Chip Kelly and UCLA, Kyle Whittingham and Utah and so on, right? Like those schools have talent and resources and good coaching and they're not going away. But I do think it's safe to assume that Dion will be better for colorado and if it doesn't work here then i don't know where colorado goes but as for what happened in jackson state um and we can talk about this later this is what we knew was going to happen right alex i mean like i dion said it he wasn't going to stay there for long i guess the, the surprise to other people is that he chose colorado
4: yeah i don't think anyone's surprised at all that dion took an fbs job he has been fairly transparent about that and he was especially so in just explaining his rationale to his players He's like, you know, the way it works is you get fired or you move up. And he's not really wrong. You know, there are cases where a coach can just kind of sit on the vine for a long time at a, at a job, but uh, it's fairly rare. I think he might've been being a bit disingenuous because if he had wanted to do that at Jackson State, I think he could have kept doing it at Jackson State. You know, it's not like he was at Alabama or Auburn or one of these jobs where they were going to say, all right, Dion, like get out of here. Like he had brought quite a bit of attention to Jackson State. I do not think that it's really true that he would have been busted out of there if he'd had a couple of bad seasons or anything like that, or if he'd have just stayed the status quo. So I think there's a bit of selective narration uh, going on there, but no, it's not surprising. Um, if you just know anything about Deion Sanders and Dion's desire to A, like, rise in various fields, whether that be football or baseball or business or uh, charter schools didn't go so well in that one case, uh, or or in coaching. It's not surprising at all that he has uh, gone to a Power 5 job. Maybe a bit surprised personally that it's Colorado because it does not strike me as the most obvious fit in the world in a couple of different ways, but you never know. and uh, He's obviously getting paid pretty well, about $6 million a year to go and do it.
0: There was a moment when Colorado football was cool in our lifetimes. I think we can remember it. Like Cordell Stewart, um,
1: Darian Hagan, Eric Biennami, Sean Salam. Yep. Sean Salam. Yep. Uh,
0: there was a moment and that was under a, a coach, Bill McCartney, who was like the promise keepers guy who had his own kind of, I don't know how, how he would describe it. He had his own, was kind it of charisma.
1: Was, I mean, that was an evangelical sort of organization, right? Yeah.
0: He was like the Christian. Football coach and like he kind of led that program in his own way, which I certainly did not agree with, but he had his kind of fans and and believers, and that school was kind of a cult of personality around him for a while, and that there was a lot of success there. So there is kind of a template. I don't know if we consider 30 years ago to be ancient history at this point. It probably, it certainly is for all of the players who would be considering going to, to Colorado, but. There is a, a way in which in all of these different venues this weekend to his former players, to his um, current players, um, that he is kind of like honest in a way that you have to appreciate, I guess. I want to play this other clip where he compares players who are coming in via the transfer portal to expensive luggage. It kind of makes sense in context. We'll play it now.
5: We got a few positions already taken care of because I'm bringing my luggage with me. And it's Louie. I'm coming. It ain't going to be no more of the mess that these wonderful fans, the student body, and some of your parents have put up with for probably two decades now. I'm coming. And when I get here, it's going to be changed. So I want y'all to get ready to go ahead and jump in that portal and do whatever you're going to get. Because the more you jump in, the more room you make. Because we bring kids that are smart. Say that smart. Smart. Tough. Tough.
0: If you didn't hear that bit right before the end, he says, I want y'all to get ready to go ahead and jump in the portal. Because the more of you jump in, the more room we make. Um, Joel, I mean, this is a thing that new coaches probably all say <laughs> to players, um, maybe it's in true. a more private setting. Yeah. Um, and so there is a way in which this is just honest, and so we can appreciate it. The two things here that I think we ne- don't necessarily need to appreciate are how much that he has made all of this about himself. When I get here, it's going to be changed. There were kind of a bizarre number of ways in which he saw fit to mention that he had played football and baseball. Just talking about, I played football and baseball. I can multitask. I wonder why God had me play for five football teams and four baseball teams. It just like kept (laughs) seeing reasons to bring up that he had played football and baseball. And then the other thing that is just extremely strange is how he gets... The kids who he's maybe trying to get to leave to repeat at the end, that the kids who are going to replace them are smart and tough. That was very strange. But do we need to appreciate or should we appreciate the the degree of honesty here? Oh, no, of course not.
1: Um, I mean, yeah, you're right. And coaches have done this before. I, I was at a school when we had a coaching change when TCU fired Pat Sullivan and brought in Dennis Franchoni. And... Coaches will make it clear to you that there's going to be change. Some of you guys might not be a good fit. You may not want to stay here. And back then we had a lot less options. You know, if you had, if you wanted to transfer, you knew you were going to have to sit out a year unless you went down a level. Um, So this is common in that I've seen coaches say this and do this sort of thing to players before. I've just never seen a coach make content of it, which speaks to sort of um the problem that I have with Dion overall and that this is all about him. And I don't, you know, I care a lot less about the Colorado piece of it than I do the Jackson State piece of it. Cause this is totally in keeping with his earlier claims or his earlier, the earlier things he said about what he was going to do for Jackson State and the SWAC and HBCUs and black college football. Um, that he, he and only he alone could marshaled together these sort of resources and energy and do the things that he did. And to an extent, he's right. Like, he did bring attention and a spotlight to Jackson State that had not been there in a very long time. But it always is about him. Um, and I also think that that's sort of telling, because Colorado is going to see, because Jackson State is going to find out now, what did Dion build at Jackson State that wasn't already there and will last? Alex, I mean, I see you nodding too. I mean, you you feel the same way about this, right? That the self-aggrandizement is just really b- beyond the pale to me because I'm like, Theon, you know that you're special and you know that you could do special things, but you also
4: know that the things that you promised to that community, you're not going to be able to deliver upon. Absolutely. I, I think, and Joel, you talked about this in detail on one of these podcast episodes maybe a month or two ago. The idea that Jackson State is this like destitute – Nothing football program that only Dion could lift up and only Dion did lift up is very silly. And the attendance has been really good by, by FCS standards, not just SWAC or MIAC or HBCU standards, but by FCS standards. Jackson State has been one of the biggest straws in the sport for a very long time. How many Hall of Famers do they have? A lot. Like mm-hmm. it's a program with plenty of history. And so I think that Dion chose to go with a branding thing for himself there, that he was going there to lift something up that, don't get me wrong, on the field certainly could have used lifting up. And he has delivered on that. They have been way better than every other school in the SWAC for the last two years since he's been there. But the branding thing is something he picked for himself. And when you pick that path, I think it's more than fair to ask, like, what did you leave at your last job? And Joel, you've talked about it at length, You know the HBCU specific factors, and I think that I agree with all of it completely. I would feel even just on football program dynamics, like if you want to talk about how you're building something up, I'm really curious to see if there's a single thing left because it's not going to be players. Like he's going to bring – you know that all of, the, uh, all of the players that he brought to Jackson State who would not normally have gone to an HBCU are going to come with him to Colorado. That's what he's talking about when he says, "I'm bringing my luggage, and it's Louie.
0: He said at his opening press conference, referring to his son Shador. That's your quarterback. So he's commi- yeah. he's committing his son to who had <laughs> who passed for seven or had 74 total touchdowns at Jackson State. Um, that that's going to be Colorado's next quarterback.
4: I think that you make it fair game to be accused of using a place to burnish mm-hmm. your own profile if you talk about it in the specific terms that Dion did um, about how he's this guy going on this like reclamation project to lift up black college football. Not up to me to decide who gets to make that claim, who doesn't, but Dion clearly did. And I will also, just like Joel, be very curious if there's any evidence that any of that was meant to last beyond his time there.
0: Just a couple things that I think are worth noting. Colorado um, has had four Black football coaches, including three in a row. John Embry, Mel Tucker, Carl the, Durrell, Deion Sanders.
1: My favorite note about this to me is that Colorado's hired more Black coaches in a row than Alcorn State, uh, Jackson State's rival.
0: And then just a couple of tweets that I found interesting that I think represent like the best versions of the arguments on, on both sides here. Steve Weish tweeted... NFL reporter, it hurts that Deion Sanders left JSU for Colorado, but I can't complain about black coaches not getting chances, then getting upset when they accept the rare opportunity. HBCU coaches almost never get consideration for these types of vacancies, so best of luck to Deion Sanders. And then Jesse Washington wrote, if the destination was Florida State or another top echelon team, I'd get it, but Colorado. That cheapens what Deion Sanders built at Florida State and sends a message that a bad football program at a white college is better than the best HBCU. This ain't it, Prime. And also, like, there's the term predominantly white institution, PWI. I looked up the University of Colorado's enrollment profile. 36,122 students enrolled in the fall of 2022. 2.6% black African-American. Um, I just did the multiplication. That's less than a 1,000 black students. 50-plus of them are on the football team.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, so it has been really interesting to me, because obviously um, my wife is an HBCU grad, my parents, HBCU grads. I'm here because of HBCUs. My parents met at, at Arkansas AM&M, which is now UAPB. So I follow a lot of people um that have been talking about this. And one of the things that I thought, um Melanie Price, she's a professor at, at Prairie View A&M, uh, which is just outside of Houston. And she said... JSU has survived in Mississippi since 1877. I think it will survive with one less grandstander. Um, and I think that's probably the best way to say it. The other thing that she mentioned that I kind of forgot about, and you, you guys see if, 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 if some of this makes any sense, because Dion as a college coach kind of came out of nowhere. She points out right here. Deion Sanders wanted to be a college coach and to coach his own sons. No PWI would let him walk off the street and do it, so he found a black college that needed the things he could bring, shine, media, money, and planted himself there. They had been starved of these things, so they accepted. And it never really had occurred to me that Deion may have done all this just so that he could coach his boys. Like, that that was initially how this got started, and then it was a real cash grab. It was a great branding and professional opportunity for him. And it went on from there. Um, but I mean, I feel like HBCUs have the right to feel used, that people at Jackson State have the right to feel used. Now, some people don't feel that way. There are a lot of people that don't. But the way that he talked about that school, the way that he talked about HBCUs, the way he talked about SWAC, it was really beyond the pale. And, you know, I hope Colorado is happy with what they get. I think they're going to be better off. But it's just... If you're, if you're a person that cares about HBCUs, you knew this day was coming and it's really hard to not say, I, I, I was going to tell you so because it hurts. And when a guy like Dion leaves for a school like Colorado, I don't, you know, Colorado could eventually be a good job, but I just like, man, those people loved you, man, and they would have loved you in a way forever if you had stayed. Like you could have been something truly special. Um, and you traded it in for something else. And, uh, in that way, I hope it works out for Dion. I hope he, finds whatever he's looking for, but HBCUs are going to be fine without you, bro. You didn't do anything special
4: for him. And they'll be okay in your absence. I think that in a couple of recent coaching moves, there has been some misunderstanding about what people take issue with. And like I, from everything that I can tell the issue that people have taken with Dion taking the Colorado job is not about this black coach should not take an opportunity when it is, when it is available or, uh, this FCS coach should not take an opportunity when it is available. It's not that at all. I think it's much more what Joel is saying. Just like when Auburn hired Hugh Freeze the other week, people weren't mad because he had gotten in NCAA trouble or because he had called escorts on a state phone. They're mad about all of the other things on Hugh Freeze's resume that are unattractive. And sometimes the waters just get a bit muddied in terms of what people are criticizing when there's a high-profile coaching move that people take issue with. And in a much different way than the Auburn case, I think that we're seeing some of that in the last day or two with Deion Sanders.
0: The only thing I would push back, Joel, on what you said is that Jackson State must have known what it was getting into and just decided to strike this bargain. Like, it would surprise me if the school administration or the athletic department Mm -hmm. were surprised that they got three years out of him. And maybe they should have made a different decision. But don't you think that they would would have expected this?
1: I think so. I I don't think those people are stupid. And I think that they were hoping that he would do exactly what he did. But I also think that because of Sanders evangelism and the way that he talks about um, mission work and everything else, that it's really seductive. Like it's a really appealing pitch and that people can buy into it. And even if the administration didn't believe him, a lot of those kids did. You know, they believed that he was going to be there. And what he said about, why not us? Why not the swag? This is going to be different. And he's on the next thing smoking. And not just the Florida State. Like, if it's just Florida State, we're talking about something else completely. If we're talking about Auburn, and actually, Alex, I want to talk about this at some point. Maybe this isn't the venue for it. But I heard Bruce Feldman say that Auburn looked at Dion and grew concerned. And so they looked past him to hire Hugh Freeze okay but uh which seems sort of crazy but whatever uh but yeah i i i think the thing is to me more than anything is what he sold those players what he told them and then to be so cold as to say hey man you know whether it's the new kids at colorado hit the transfer portal or in jackson state say it is what it is um it's just you know it all comes back to dion is about dion at the end of the day
0: Thanks, Joel. And Alex Kirshner, thank you for um, coming on Split Zone Duo. Everybody should check it out. If you liked this conversation, you'll love uh, what Alex does on that show every week. Thanks, Alex.
4: Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.
0: And now it is time for Afterball, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was OK. Kurt Streeter of The New York Times had a good piece last week about uh, diversity in the U.S. men's national team. He wrote that the current 26-man roster has more players of color than any in U.S. World Cup history, includes several with Latino heritage and nearly a dozen black players, including Tyler Adams, first black American to be the sole captain of a U.S. men's team for an entire World Cup. Um, but Streeter highlighted, um, a player who didn't get much media due and attention. Um, when he played in the World Cup in 1990, he was the first black player born in the U.S. to represent the country in a World Cup game. And that is Desmond Armstrong. Um, he was one of two black players on that team along with Jimmy Banks. Um, it's a really good piece. We'll link to it in our uh, show notes. But uh, Desmond Armstrong, know the man, remember the name. And he is currently running a economically and racially diverse youth soccer program in Nashville, Tennessee. Stefan, what is your Desmond Armstrong?
2: Well, sticking with the World Cup, soccer or football might be the dumbest conversation in sports of all time. And now that the U.S. is out... I wanted to get in a word about it. There's the awful potato chip commercial with Peyton Manning and David Beckham, Brits denigrating Americans for calling football soccer, Americans chanting, it's called soccer. We're stuck with this dumb shittery, I think, forever. The word soccer was born in England. My friend Ben Zimmer laid out the capsule history last week in his language column in the Wall Street Journal. Mid-1800s, two sports in England, rugby football after the rugby school where the kicking and throwing game was developed, and association football the kicking game, after England's Football Association. Students at the rugby school did what kids do, play around with the language. Adding an ER to words was common British slang. So, as Ben writes, football became footer, rugby became rugger, and association football, a sock for short, A-S-S-O-C, got nicknamed soccer, spelled S-O-C-K-E-R, or S-O-C-C-E-R. Ben reports that Yale Law School librarian Fred Shapiro, whom he describes as the OG of antedating using digital databases, recently dated the earliest example of soccer in print, to 1885 in England. In America, colleges in the 1860s and 70s tried out rugby football, association football, and an emerging variant that wound up the sport of choice at the elites, gridiron football. Just as England dropped the association from association football, Americans dropped the gridiron from gridiron football, two countries, two sports, one name. Having lost the fight for football, the round ball game here went with association football and a local hybrid, soccer football. There are lots of mentions of soccer football in American newspapers in the early 1900s, but soccer didn't appear in a league name until 1921. The National Federation was the United States Football Association from 1914 until 1945, and then the United States Soccer Football Association football wasn't dropped from the name until 1975. Soccer, meanwhile, was used freely and without controversy in England through the 1970s. But once the sport became a thing here, soccer became defined in European minds as, noun, a lesser form of football. And it stuck. When Iran coached Carlos Kirosh last week attempted to praise the U.S. team, he said they jumped from soccer to football. Soccer crude, unsophisticated second rate, football, the beautiful game. Even the trade publication Soccer America fell for it, headlining a column after the Iran game, USA graduates from soccer to football before our eyes. British English and American English are different in a million ways. Football is better than soccer, the same way that lifts are better than elevators. It's not, and they're not. The whole thing makes my head hurt. But I've decided that I actually might be okay with the It's Called Soccer chant if it was being deployed in a jingoistic USA baby sort of way. That would only reinforce an inferiority complex, but I actually don't think it was. I think, or would like to think, that it was being used ironically to troll European football snobs, to flaunt our modest success, to poke fun at ourselves. Same for the Christian Pulisic meme where man in the mirror was replaced with it's called soccer on the t-shirt that he displayed after scoring against Mexico last year. That was kind of funny. I'll back up my hope by noting that most chants in the da 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 cadence are intended to be trolly or funny. My Yankees fan brain goes to two of them: 1918, which fans serenaded at the Red Sox before they won the World Series in 2004, and "Who's Your Daddy?" sung at Pedro Martinez in that era. The problem is that. Fans do something funny, and the next thing you know, Alexi Lalas is holding up an It's Called Soccer banner on the Fox set in Doha. You can't win. All right, I'm going to go long here, Josh, with one more soccer football language issue. Sort of an afterball bonus. Listener Daniel Zohar emailed us last week, when announcers from the UK discuss something done by a team, they pluralize the name. Thus, they may say England have won or Portugal are tired. And if I were listening to a broadcast from the BBC, Daniel wrote... I would have no complaints, but now the American announcers are doing the same thing on Fox's coverage, and it irks me. So should Daniel be irked? The underlying grammatical issue is whether to use a singular verb or a plural verb with a collective noun, and it's another regional difference between British and American English that has nothing to do with soccer-football sophistication. Brits generally use plural verbs, like in Daniel's examples. The team as a plural noun, the players and coaches and fans all together— or separately as part of the collective. Americans prefer singular ones, the team as a singular noun, Boston sucks, not Boston suck. But Daniel's question is really about whether American soccer announcers and fans, using the plural verb, is an annoying affectation, like naming teams FC or Real. Personally, I'll almost always go with the singular, but I'm not a hardliner and do the plural myself sometimes unthinkingly. Brazil are awesome, Mexico were ass, and I'm not alone. Here are a couple of ESPN headlines from the weekend. South Korea show or Uruguay out. Spain have been given a second chance. As with the name of the game, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't say anything about the state of the sport in this country. The United States is going to win soccer's World Cup in 2026. The United States are going to win football's World Cup in 2026. Either is fine by me.
0: That Soccer America thing was really weird. Have some self-respect.
2: Right? I couldn't believe that. Totally got suckered by Carlos Quiroche. They took it as a compliment and degraded themselves in the process.
0: You mean they got footballed by Carlos Kirosh? They got footballed. They got nutmegged. That's a universal soccer term. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.